It's Friday night. It's been a while, but uh, because it's Friday night and it's 9 o'clock or a little after, you know I'm back with you on the Logic and Larry podcast. I'm your host, Logical Larry Luciano Crane, as you've come to know me, love me, loathe me, whatever it is that you, whatever opinion you might have of me. You can tell by my musical selection before the show started my stance on cancel culture. And just to remind you, anything and everything I say on this podcast is strictly my opinion. My personal opinion alone as a private citizen does not reflect in any way the opinion of any other entity, any other group of people. I speak for nobody and in, but myself and only in a private capacity as a private citizen. I like that song, the baby it's cold outside song, because you know, to me it just, it kind of delves into the dynamic of men and women sometimes, or she doesn't want the neighbors to talk, she doesn't want anybody to know what she's up to, and he's just like, come on, will you stay, you know, I got nice wine here, I like you a lot, you know, we've made some good progress tonight, just stay with me, kick it, kick it with me tonight. She's saying, nah, you know, I don't want the neighbors to talk, I gotta go, you know, just a little dynamic, a little flirty dynamic, a little back and forth between men and women we don't have to try to distort it read into it extrapolate upon it exaggerate it self-aggrandize ourselves and writing ridiculous op-eds about it we don't have to do that do we? No, we don't. silly to do so we're not going to do it and this week we have there's there's so much that's taken place since i've last been on and i look i understand that uh you know, I miss some news when I'm not on the air, and it gets frustrating for some people. You want to hear the news, you want to listen to me talk about the news, and when we uh, are not all on board, sometimes it gets, uh, you're like, shit, Larry, get on, get on the, the show, and let's talk about what happened. So I know we got a lot to catch up on, I'm not going to touch on every last thing. We know that uh, Governor Cuomo of New York's in trouble. The, there was an incident regarding the nursing home deaths where somebody's alleging that he threatened to ruin their career if they dared, uh, went to the press or followed up with any of the issues going on with the nursing home deaths. That's of serious concern. And that is and should be investigated. After that, there were all these allegations of sexual harassment. I'm not going to delve into those on the show. Uh, but that came after that, so Cuomo's going through some stuff. On a brighter note, the stimulus, the $1.9 trillion stimulus this week has passed. The Senate confirmed it, then it went to, on a party line vote, 50 to 50, and then uh, Vice President Harris had to break that tie, so it was 51-50. Went back to the House, the House approved it as well. It wound up on the desk of President Biden. President Biden signed it. And so the stimulus checks are going out. Some people I know have already received stimulus checks. Uh, other people are still waiting. You should have your checks soon if you qualify. The limits go up to $75,000 per individual. I forget the couple's limits, but most people will be getting them very, very soon. So that's good news. That's good news. And state and local governments are getting aid. Now I'm going to have Neil Elko on a little bit later. And we are going to discuss uh, the stimulus a little bit because he, you know, has some insight into it for reasons I'll let him explain to you. And we'll kind of delve into that. I'll take your calls later. Um, 
But this week, look, aside from the Cuomo news, uh, on a good note, we have vaccines ramping up very well. Many people I know have gotten one or two shots already. So vaccines are moving along at a good pace. And that's a good thing. And we are starting to see uh, different venues open up to uh, greater capacities. In New Jersey now, we can have 50% capacity indoors at indoor dining establishments. Uh, and those things, uh, our arenas, we're allowed to start having people in. So things are picking up and things are getting back a bit to a normal some might want to call it a new normal, but uh, I'm hoping it just goes all the way back to straight up normal all over again. I really do. But what of my selection of music tonight? I had the baby. It's cold outside playing. I got Frank playing now. What about what of that? You know, why is that something that I'm doing tonight? Well, first of all, I just like it. I'm a fan. I dig Frank. I mean, most people dig Frank, especially if you're from Jersey. But um. This week, I mean, we had just, I mean, look, let's face it, most of the buzz this week, and I hate to really even talk about it because it's so far from what is important, and it's so far outside the realm of what we should be discussing, that it's almost silly to get bogged down in it, but yet this podcast is such a social media, Facebook-esque, Facebook-oriented show that I'd be remiss not to touch on some of the most hot-button subjects that are being discussed on Facebook and those various mediums. And the fact is that this week there was so much to do, so much about cancel culture and things being canceled and it all started with dr seuss i didn't even know look i don't even know this that international reading day or national reading day every year is on dr seuss's birthday maybe i knew it when i was a kid i didn't know it. i didn't know i had no idea but dr seuss himself came out and said you know that they were pulling i think six different books off the shelves uh, they were doing it on their own volition. They were pulling the books off the shelves because the illustrations in the books uh, portrayed different um, ethnic groups in a, in a negative light. Dr. Seuss, well, the family, whoever controls the uh, books, decided to pull them off the shelves. It started a whole big thing. But notably, I mean, look, it wasn't canceling Dr. Seuss in general, but notably, from what I heard, the president, when he gave his speech about National Reading Day, he didn't mention Dr. Seuss then. And then there was a whole big back backlash from right-wing people on social media and pundits about canceling Dr. Seuss. And it started this whole thing. And then later in the week, it was Pepe Le Pew who was canceled. He was pulled off Space Jam. He was debated hotly in the press. Was Pepe Le Pew establishing or helping to cultivate rape culture in our youth? It was a big ado, big to do. Lots going on, lots to talk about. And really, it's all irrelevant. I mean, look, so Dr. Seuss pulled the books. I, I understand him pulling the books. I get Dr. Seuss pulling the books. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, um, he can do what he wants and probably was the right decision to pull those books, given the illustrations in the books. Probably shouldn't have been a big media thing about it. It'd probably be better if he just pulled them 
from the shelves and didn't make an announcement because you know when you make an announcement it's almost like you want the publicity which because you know, dr seuss books are selling at a record high now because of that so who knows if he needed to make the announcement but he pulled the books and i understand why he pulled the books but then you had this op-ed in the New York Times written by Charles Blow. And if you don't know who Charles Blow is, you know I, I encourage you to do this. Look up Charles, go to YouTube and look up Charles Blow, Kelly McEnany. Charles Blow, Kelly McEnany, you know, blow up or something like that. And look, she, I'm not a fan of hers. I mean, most people aren't a fan of hers. She's not very popular, I get it. But his reaction to her when she like tapped his arm and uh, when they were both appearing on Don Lemon, I mean, it tells you everything you need to know about this guy. All right, it tells you everything you need to know. I mean, it's just it's the type of guy you wouldn't, you know, he's just he's so touchy and thin-skinned and you know everything bothers him. And he's the one who wrote the op-ed about Pepe Le Pew, which, by the way, he bit he bit that. You know, if you're in the rap game, you call it you know you being a biter, you bite somebody's material. He bit that from Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle did a bit on Pepe Le Pew being like a rapist like 15 years ago okay and this guy writes an op-ed about it so that becomes the new thing everybody wants to talk about Pepe Le Pew and at the end of the day I just you know I here's my thing is Pepe Le Pew the best thing for kids to watch necessarily I don't know probably not but when I was a kid, I always took it as not that Pepe Le Pew was some um, sexual harasser or sexual assaulter. I always took it as the joke was that the cat went under the paint stripe. And there's always a different reason she gets the paint on her. And she looks like a skunk. And she's not a skunk. And so he tries to chase her around because he falls in love with her because he thinks she's a skunk. But she's actually a cat. So she's like, you stink. Get away from me. And that's it. I never read much more into it as a kid. And I was the type of kid, I liked women, I I knew about things, you know, I saw PG-13 movies when I was, before I was 13, and I knew about that, but I never, it never came across that I should emulate Pepe Le Pew's behavior toward human women, I didn't get the joke that way, I just didn't get the joke though, I think it's a little far-fetched. And look, whether you are on the side of you should pull Pepe, or you should keep Pepe, or whatever the hell. Don't you think it's a little bit ridiculous that there's somebody who gets paid to write for the New York Times that spends his time writing things like that? That's what this guy does with his spare time. This is what he contributes to our societal dialogue. Okay. Now, we have voting rights bills that Joe Biden's pushing right now. We have voting restrictive bills in several of the states that Joe Biden won, including Georgia, that would restrict the voting rights of minorities in this country. We have a $1.9 trillion stimulus. We have vaccines. We have all of these things happening, and this is what has dominated our public dialogue for a week. And why do I bring up Charles Blow and the Pepe Le Pew thing? Why, why do I even take issue with them? Maybe they have a point, right? Why even get mad at them? Well, because it's simple. These are the people that are getting paid and have, quote, influence on our societal and social dialogue. And this is the crap they come up with. This is what they want to concentrate, spend their time on. And I've I've just I've had about enough of it. Now, interestingly, today, this all ties into a larger thing. Let's be honest. So today, Chuck Schumer comes out after they sign this stimulus deal. And it's a one point nine trillion dollar stimulus deal. and It's got a lot to it. So he comes out and he says, well, 
this finally will show the American people. He makes this declaration. They always make these declarations, these politicians. They come out with these grand declarations. This will show the American people, Schumer said. This will show the American people that the government can work for them. The government can work for them. The Democrats have the presidency. The Democrats have the House. The Democrats have the Senate. And we passed a $1.9 trillion bill. And now they'll see that Democrats and government does things for them. Well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that assertion? What's wrong with thinking that? Well, here's what's wrong with it. Chuck thinks that the American people truly believe that government doesn't do anything for them. And they truly believe, he truly believes, that the American people, in seeing the stimulus payments in their checking accounts over the next few weeks, are suddenly going to have an epiphany, wake up and say, geez, Louise, we really should be supporting the Democrats and the government because the government sure works for us. And in the same week, I saw a, a post on Facebook by one Bernie Sanders, and Bernie Sanders aggravated, and understandably aggravated. Bernie said there was an article about how Donald Trump and the Republicans were proclaiming that the blue-collar American was a Republican voter now, that the Republican Party was the voice of the blue-collar Americans, that the Republican Party was the platform of blue-collar America. And Bernie said he broke down the numbers, he broke down the policy. He broke down everything in that vein. And he said, cut me a break. Those were Bernie's words. Cut me a break. How could the Republican Party be the platform and the party of blue-collar America when the Republican Party does absolutely nothing for blue-collar America? How could that be? How could that be? And how could Chuck Schumer be out there saying, they're going to see now. Now they're going to get it. We are for the people. How does that all tie in with this cancel culture thing? Well, here's how it ties in. What Bernie is failing to recognize and what Chuck is failing to see is that people are not motivated in their everyday dialogue in life necessarily by doing a critical analysis of what the government has done for them and deciding whether the government caters to their particular economic or socioeconomic bracket and if that's who they should vote for. They're not conducting that type of a deep analysis. They're simply not. And Chuck and Bernie are missing it. What are they doing when they go to the polls? What is the majority of issues that dominate our public dialogue right now? What catches people's attention? What does the media do? What are we driven by? We are driven by hot button social topics that have pretty much nothing to do on a large scale with individual people and their individual struggles and financial situations and employment situations and everything else. We have degraded into a society where we are consistently and constantly motivated by social hot button issues and nonsense almost all the time. So this ridiculous, this cancel culture debate, this gets people thinking more and more, and this gets people more and more motivated to go to the polls than the stimulus does. Do you think people who voted for Donald Trump thought the government couldn't help? No, they thought the government would help them because he used rhetoric that comports with this idea that there's an elite who wants to cancel everything and wants to scrutinize things beyond where they need to be scrutinized. 
and they've had enough of it. And this is this is the culture wars. Now, if you don't understand history, you got to look into the Southern strategy in the 1960s and how Republicans ever got into the South and how Republicans ever tapped into poor white people in the first place. They used cultural issues, the culture wars. And they're going to continue to capitalize. The more that we focus on taking cartoon characters away, they're going to use that to drive a wedge between people. And if you don't believe me, if you don't believe this happens, then you got to get out of your urban metropolitan bubbles, okay? Because last week, I went down back home where I'm from, which is still very suburban. It's in the general New York area, but it's nothing like where I live now. It's nothing like a main city. I go back there and the attitudes are very different and the people are not necessarily as informed. And I had lunch with two lovely ladies and we're having lunch. We're, we're talking, having a couple drinks and they want to ask me about COVID and I'm telling them and they want to ask me about this and they ask me about that. And then they just blurt out like, these Democrats though, I just don't, I can't stand them. They want to cancel everything now. They don't like this. They don't want that. They don't like this. And these aren't people that were Republicans most of their lives, okay? These are people that like President Obama. These are people who just, they just go with where the wind tells them, okay? They're just average Janes that just live, you know, they just, they don't know the ins and outs of every issue, but they're motivated by this. This is what's bothering them now, okay? This cancel stuff. This is what's on the forefront of their mind. That's what's taking over our dialogue, this cancel stuff. And I find it interesting because who is, who is, dictating this to us. I read one really good op-ed in the New York Times this week that kind of broke down that many of the people who are pushing the cancel culture, who are trying to wash away history and all these other things, are predominantly well-off white liberals. Well-off white liberals who are in a bubble themselves and they feel that they are doing some service and that they are doing the right thing, yada, yada. They're holier than thou. What they're actually doing is hurting the viability of their own political goals. And when I was in law school, I tried to put forth a paper. It was about metropolitan equity, uh, housing. How can we make housing more equitable? And my topic, what I wanted to write about was I wanted to write about the political viability of accomplishing that goal. I wanted to write about how you could have a political strategy that would stop talking about pie-in-the-sky ideas and stop dreaming up grievances or, or identifying actual and legitimate grievances and just talking about them till we were blue in the face. And I wanted to actually research and write about how we could put those goals into practice and, and make them come to fruition. But I was shot down. I was shot down in looking for political viability because political viability is not really something these folks want to talk about. They don't actually necessarily want to achieve most of these things. They just like to get up and speak in their echo chambers about how mad they are that they're not there, that nothing's working. And it's, it's really, really incredible. And I read this article and it was true. And, and another thing that was interesting this week is somebody, a conservative, called me a young liberal influencer. I was called a young liberal influencer by somebody on my Facebook. And he didn't mean it as a derogatory thing, really, but he didn't necessarily mean it as a compliment because it was a conservative person. I found this so interesting. <laughs> Because, hey, I'm not young. I wish I was young. I mean, I'm getting older. I'm getting much older, and I'm not, I'm not young. I guess you could say I have somewhat of a liberal, liberal slant, but I mean, 
I'm definitely not what people are identifying and classifying as a young liberal influencer. That's for damn sure. An influencer. I wouldn't call myself an influencer because I have this little podcast and I'm on Facebook and I engage with people in my community. I don't think that I'm necessarily an influencer, but I found it interesting because influencers, I've noticed on Facebook, every time there's this hot button issue, like there's always a hot take, right? So there's all these voting rights issues going on and they're, they're of extreme importance to the country and to our democracy. They are trying to restrict voting in certain states and we are trying to pass um, voting rights acts in the federal government to defend against these things. And I see these hot takes. Somebody posted a hot take. I always notice on Facebook, there's always a hot take, right? There's always some quote by somebody I never heard of, and it's always some kinder logic, nonsensical quote that makes no sense. It's completely out of context, and you know, the guy down the block could have came up with it in his sleep while half drunk and said the same thing, and they act like it's some great word of wisdom. Somebody posted somebody saying, I go on a flight with my ID, and I drive a car with my ID, so why don't, what's wrong with IDs for voting again? They, it's been researched over and over and over again. Hunting licenses are okay. Student IDs are not in a lot of these states. If certain clubs use student IDs or different ID problems to restrict the access of African-American patrons to their clubs, I mean, this has been researched. It's been reiterated. It has been discussed ad nauseum. But some guy on some social media site comes up with that hot take, and I'm supposed to pause and say, wow, what a great take. And then it shares, and it goes viral, and it goes viral, and people don't know the issue latch on to this viral thing and it becomes a big thing. But here's what I want to bring up about that. Just like with this guy writing op-eds about Pepe Le Pew in the New York Times, I noticed every one of these guys, every one of these guys that they're quoting, that they're putting forth as some great beacon of logic, they have a stupid blue check next to, next to the name. A blue check mark. I don't know who the guy is. The guy could be a nobody. He could have got famous because he puts comedy voiceovers on TikTok. Could have been a girl who got famous because she's half a model. Could have been somebody who was on a reality show and cursed and spewed racism on the whole time on the reality show. But for whatever reason, they have a blue check mark next to the name. And because they have a blue check mark next to the name, they're an influencer. And all of a sudden, we have to pay attention to them. And when they say something, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, listen to what they say, and it goes viral in the split second and no one can catch up to it no one can have a substantive conversation because they're spreading this nonsense and the fact is i'm not an influencer i don't have a blue check and none of you have a blue check so your word isn't as good as joe schmo with the blue check and i posted this week that twitter i said twitter sucks why do i think twitter sucks well here's why because it's just for celebrities and people who already have a platform to just say something and then a bunch of people to latch on to there's not a lot of dialogue you can't share a lot of other things it's a bunch of nonsense okay it's how somebody like donald trump got to power it's how these cancel culture warriors decide things all the time anytime they want to just start some issue and make it look like it's widespread they'll just go crazy on twitter and here's the crazy thing I'm not really an avid, an avid Twitter user. A lot of people I know are not really avid Twitter users. So why is it that Twitter is the beacon and Twitter is the litmus test for societal feelings? It seems that every time Twitter goes crazy, they always say, liberal Twitter, black Twitter, young Twitter, Gen Z Twitter, Republican Twitter, who cares? 
facets. It's one facet of society. It's just Twitter. It's one facet. It's one little microcosm of overall society that a lot of people don't even participate in. Why is that the barometer for everything? I once read an interview with Bill Murray, and Bill Murray said he basically hides out in some state, I forget which state, and he doesn't take phone calls, only very rarely he takes voicemails and he screens his calls by taking voicemails instead of answering the phone. And once in a blue moon, if there's an acting role or a guest feature or something that he wants to take part in, he will call back. But other than that, he pretty much lets the phone ring and he's not interested in participating anymore. He said the reason was, the reason was that he wasn't interested in participating was because that every content creator, anybody with their finger on the pulse, anybody with the power to create content or the power to influence society by putting out certain content, they look to the Twitter statistics, the Twitter trends before they decide who's in a movie or what kind of movie they're going to put out, things of that nature. And it's just... It's crazy that that's the barometer now. And not only is that barometer the Twitter barometer, but the sentiments regarding what should be canceled sometimes makes sense that things should be canceled. Sometimes it's extrapolating and creating a mythological straw man where nothing ever existed. And it's just getting so far out of hand, and it's just a small select group of people who are doing it. And they're just driving me nuts. And they are controlling our narrative. And speaking of the media and the narratives, that gentleman, Mr. Blow, wrote the op-ed in the New York Times. Well, I've been noticing, and I went into this maybe a bit the last podcast, but there's been this huge push now, this sentiment regarding anti-Asian violence in this country. And apparently there has been a spike in violence against Asian Americans. And the media has now taken that up because, again, that was a trend. I noticed it first percolating on social media and percolating, percolating. And once the media sees that and once the those who create entertainment and content see that, then they're going to want to feed into that because if it's percolating on social media and if it's generating a lot of enthusiasm on social media, then they know they can get a lot of clicks. A lot of clicks by putting out content that corresponds to that. So now I've seen the national media, they're constantly reporting on anything that has an Asian victim of violence, they're reporting on. And they're getting quotes from activists, and they're, they're pursuing that angle every time they see it. But one of the interesting things is that I've seen some of these videos, they show the video and it co coincides with the story they're telling about Asian violence. And in probably 80% of the videos that they show where an Asian person is getting knocked out or assaulted, the individual who's assaulting them is a young person and a few times, a considerable amount of times, it was a young person of color that was assaulting the Asian person. Now, I don't think that has anything to do with anything other than I don't think it has anything to do with actual anti-Asian sentiment. I think a lot of the crimes that they're showing are simply street crimes in impoverished areas where people are getting assaulted and then robbed and things. But they just turn it into this Asian, anti-Asian narrative. But one thing they fail to do is they fail to report on who the individual is that's doing the attack. 
if it's not somebody who fits the narrative, which is going to generate the clicks, i.e. a Trump supporter, a white straight male, something of that nature, a racist, a proud boy, if it's not somebody like that who's assaulting the Asian person, then they don't report on who did it at all. They just continue to reference anti-Asian violence and continue to say, you know, look what Trump did when he talked about coronavirus. That's what started it. And they don't go into the deeper issue. The deeper issue may very well be high crime rates in certain areas of the country due to poverty and lack of opportunity. But that's too deep and too complex of an issue to get into, so they'd rather stick with the surface stuff. And the surface stuff is, well, it's some race-based thing, and it's easy to, to blame Trump and Proud Boys. We're gonna stick to that. We don't wanna delve into what it actually is. We're gonna just say it's a hate crime because it generates clicks. And now our whole narrative is in this caught in this crazy catch-22 vicious cycle where the media is putting out things to generate clicks based on what would generate clicks. And what generates clicks is these binary, hot-button, race-based, you know, cancel culture-based issues. And it's just this vicious cycle that we can't seem to get out of. And we can't seem to have a real conversation about anything anymore. And while we're busy pulling cartoon characters from 50 years ago off the air, states like Georgia are actually restricting and suppressing and oppressing the minority votes in their states. And while we are worried about statues from 70 years ago, 100 years ago, they are misidentifying and misprosecuting cases of hate crimes or not based on that. And while we are stuck in these ridiculous debates, our infrastructure continues to rot. Our climate continues to change at an alarming pace. Our housing disparities, our wealth disparities, our incarceration crisis continues to be exacerbated as we fight over trivial nonsense. And I brought this up and I brought this up before. It comes down to the bubble. Who's the ones with control of the narrative? Who are the ones with control of the narrative? Those people in their bubble, mostly their gentrified, privileged, white bubble. They're the ones who are dictating the narrative. I was on Bumble the other day, just flipping through, and some girl's profile came up and it said, her headline, her opening headline was, F your suburban fantasy. I hate people who cream over Ronald Reagan and cream over the military. Who cares? She can have whatever opinion she had, but she's in a bubble somewhere where she thinks that's cool to like rock on and just F your suburban fantasy. And hey, even somebody like me, I'm not fond of suburban fantasies, guys. It's not my thing. It's not my lifestyle. I understand the criticism of it. I understand the critique of the white picket fence. You know, nuclear family, suburban dream. I understand that. I criticize it, too. But to be so overt and angry about it is an interesting thing. Now, today, I'm on wit's end once again because I consistently and continually talk about the fact that there are always victims of crime and there are victims of the society because the complex and substantive issues that we... I don't even want to say fail to address, that we refuse to address, continue to fester. So I will tell you that today, a 63-year-old woman, a 63-year-old woman on her birthday, her 63rd birthday, 63rd birthday in South Newark, a black woman was shot and killed on her 63rd birthday. Do you think it was a domestic violence situation? Do you think she had anything to do with it? Do you think 
Maybe she was a part of something she shouldn't have been. If you thought that, you'd be wrong. She was just a bystander. She was a bystander in a neighborhood where somebody sprayed the block with an illegal gun, probably from another state, indiscriminately firing because of some nonsensical beef, and they killed a 63-year-old citizen, and it barely got a peep from the state media, from the county media, from anything. It had a little blurb in RLS media, and RLS media, if you live in Jersey, you know, is just the beat. It's really literally like the beat writers for Just New Jersey. They just release every bit of information. All this woman got was a blurb. She lived a 63-year-long life, law-abiding citizen, and she was killed on her 63rd birthday because of violence, nonsensical, insane, senseless violence in her neighborhood. And another young man was shot, too. And he worked for Beth Israel Hospital. Another contributing citizen was shot indiscriminately by bullets flying in a bad neighborhood, a rough neighborhood. And no one says anything. And why? Because those who live far, far away from that neighborhood, who don't drive through that neighborhood, who don't live there, who don't try to deal with it and make it a better place every day, who don't have to deal with the issues on the ground, somewhere across the Passaic River, further down, maybe in Jersey City, maybe once more across that Hudson River, somewhere in a high up, bland, steel structure, eating organic food because they can afford it and looking down upon everybody else and too busy debating the merits of cartoon characters from 1942. They think they've done their job by signing a petition to take down a statue or doing their duty in their company by failing to reissue some cartoon character from 50 years ago. And they get to do all that and pat themselves on the back because they don't have to actually deal with the fact that they contribute to housing inequality. That they make so much money and they live in such a gentrified and whitewashed area and neighborhood that they don't have to deal with education inequality. And then when the person who probably sprayed up that block and killed that woman is incarcerated for doing so, they'll get on TV or get on the phone or get on their Facebook and talk about how horrible it is that that person is incarcerated, how horrible it is that we're punishing that person. But where were they when the woman was killed? And more importantly, where were they before she was killed when they could have done something that actually meant something to change this country and to actually help the people of this country? They were debating the merits of Pepe Le Pew and whether baby it's cold outside should be aired anymore and sang along with that's what they were doing the pettiness and trivial nature of what we're dealing with is ridiculous and it's one thing that they are in this bubble going back and forth with each other over the nonsense it's a completely and entirely different thing that we allow them to control our narrative i have spent the majority of this podcast talking about cancel culture because they dictate the narrative and no one's talking about the complex issues and no one's dealing with the actual issues we're just playing patty cake about nonsense. And I'm getting sick of it. There's so much political veneer, political facade, political gamesmanship, theater, and so little substantive action. So many of these people make these grand proclamations, these politicians. So few of them 
actually do something that changes and makes a difference. So few of them are in the trenches, figuratively. And it's a shame. I'm not here to even offer a solution. What, what's a solution? We can all sit here. We could talk about the things that mean something. We could all criticize the nonsense. But at the end of the day, we're only a small group of people. I don't have a blue check next to my name last time I checked. So I won't be plastered all over social media with some nonsensical hot take, will I? I'll just be here pontificating and talking over some dope music, chilling with a nice cool breeze coming in off the Newark skyline into my living room, kicking. That's it. And it's sad that we are living in this world where the narrative has gotten completely out of control and where things that we should be focusing on, like the Voting Rights Act, things we should be focusing on, like housing equality, school equality, better policing, only gets a passing gesture. And the article in the New York Times, by the way, that I referenced, which was talking about who drives these narratives, one of the interesting things about that article was it also talked about how in Minnesota when they wanted to abolish the police and they wanted to, you know, Minnesota, Minneapolis in particular had this big push to actually abolish the police department. There. And there were all these activists. And he goes into some detail about these activists and how they knew they wanted to abolish the police because it was the popular thing to say and the popular thing to do. They had the luxury of saying they wanted to abolish the police because these were people who didn't need the police. They didn't deal with crime very much. They didn't deal with needing services. See, what they misread a lot of times is that people in certain neighborhoods wish they had more services and they don't get them and they're, they're inadequately applied and they're only there when they want to cause trouble, but not there when they want to help. They missed that. So anyway, he goes into how they, they found they wanted to abolish the police and they, they decided they were going to abolish the police and that's what they were going to do. But then once they actually, once they actually got to the point of abolishing them, they had no clue what to do. They had no plan of how to actually make up for the services lost or how they were going to actually deal with things that needed to be dealt with at that point. And, and it's just a lot of grandstanding. The article pointed out these people have the luxury of grandstanding, saying things that politically makes them feel good. But again... My paper that I never got to write, the political viability, the political viability. Where's the political viability angle? Where's the practical utilitarian implementation of a better system, of a, of a refined system, of a, of a better thought out system? Where is that? It's just a lot of grandstanding and pontification and talks about trivial nonsense and so little actual substance. It's nonsense. And part of what I was doing these three weeks when I wasn't on here was just getting quite frustrated. So frustrated. These are the things we're talking about and you're going to report on things in the news, but you're only going to tell parts of the story because you're trying to feed the narrative and not disrupt your narrative. And nothing can be complicated. Nothing can be a long, complicated article. It's always got to be a little quick clickbait article, a headline, a two-paragraph thing. They just want to keep up the simple narrative and the simplistic narrative that they've created to distract us from the actual substantive things. And this isn't because it's some conspiracy. 
This is because people are out for themselves, as always. If you're a journalist, you want to get more clicks. You want to get promoted. If you're a politician, you want to say what everybody wants to hear so that you get voted. If you're in a position of power that actually influences these things, you're going to talk out of two ends of your mouth. You say you care about the community. You say you put the right face on it. Even sometimes they'll say, well, I'm promoting this person or putting this person in power because they look a certain way or you think they're a certain way. But when it comes to substance, I'm actually not going to do anything to help you. And that's another thing we've gotten into when we do this cancel culture, this binary discussion, this veneer where everything's based on what you look like, what you can ascertain about somebody from a quick link on Twitter or a quick click. When we base everything on that, people are allowed to cheat and steal and equivocate because they can put somebody up who meets all the checkboxes at first glance of what people think they want, but really in underneath, beneath the surface, they're not doing anything to help the situation. They're not substantively doing anything that people actually want. And even worse, sometimes they're making it worse. They're doubling down on things that people don't want, things that are not good. And I don't know if that was the most coherent of my monologues to date. I'm guessing it probably wasn't. I kind of shotgunned it. I shotgunned a lot of my monologues. But I think there was some coherence in there. I think the, 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 the summary of what I'm saying is I'm tired of even debating these trivial, petty things and acting like it means something substantive while substantive things are going on all around us and we are doing very little to address them. And I, I'm sorry, but I don't care about Pepe Le Pew and I don't care if you take it a certain way and I take it a certain way. I take it as a cat who gets a stripe painted on her and she doesn't like skunks, all right? That's what I take it as. I didn't take it any, any further. It's funny when Chappelle did it, the guy can write his op-ed, but now, I mean, do we really have to spend that much time on it? I mean, really, really, enough, enough of this. And I don't know that they have, if they have the societal or social will, but that's the job of the people in charge. They are too busy fermenting this nonsense. They can ferment it if it's going to help them get elected or whatever, but then once they get elected, why don't they actually do something about it? They're grandstanding on the same nonsense that the people are grandstanding on. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And even if, say society doesn't have the capacity right, to get philosophical. Say society doesn't have the capacity. Say society can't do it. Well, then I guess my rant is less one seeking a solution and one seeking to change it and more just general frustrations from somebody who thinks about these things and just gets so frustrated with the limited scope of what's out there and the things we wind up getting sidetracked by, which are so, so frustrating to the inquisitive mind. It just feels like you're trapped in a box and you don't have much of an outlet. And it's just very, very frustrating. It just is. 
And I'm glad you guys are talking about things while you're on here, by the way. That's what it's for. You can listen to me in the background and just have a conversation. That's good. Um, anyway, listen. That's that's my rant on the, the events of the last couple of weeks. I'm just I'm tired of the the Twitter army deciding what should be canceled, what shouldn't. I think I went into the Bachelor thing, which was just insane. If you don't know about it, look it up. We're vilifying people for all the wrong reasons, and the narratives get legs and run on their own, and it's just, it's exhausting. And more importantly, people are going to vote on the basis of that nonsense. So people can sit there and say, I've seen a lot of people on more on the left these couple weeks say, oh, you're too busy talking about Pepe Le Pew. Meanwhile, you know, we're working on the stimulus. Yeah, true. The right is, is up in arms about Pepe Le Pew. It's stupid to be up in arms about it. But who started it? The guy, Charles Blow, who wrote the op-ed, he's from the left. Everybody's contributing to this nonsense. Sense. And what they don't understand is that the more we're talking about this crap, the less viable their platform gets. Somebody described Trump to me once, and I read it, and it was great. He was a front row kid, which they see the front row as these elites, these people in these nice areas, these nice places, with all this money and all these elitism, making decisions for all of us. And Trump was one of them, but he went to the back row in the back of the classroom to sit with the kids who didn't have anything. And he started throwing spitballs at the elites in the front row. And that's why they liked him. A lot of people seem to want to vote for people like him, not caring about their own situation, not caring about the health of the country, not caring about the health of the economy, but just to stick it in the eye of these people they perceive as elites who want to do things that they think just don't make any sense. And so it's not politically viable to keep doubling down. That's it. But look, all of that, all of that. And we're not talking about The Bachelor being vilified, Rick, in terms of it. It's the host of The Bachelor was called the racist and all these other things. I think I showed you the article. It's just crazy. But I don't want to get into this anymore because it's it's a never-ending circle that goes nowhere, gets nowhere, and is really unproductive. But I just wanted to you know, express those sentiments because that's what's been the hot-button thing this week. That's what everybody's been talking about. And I thought I would uh, get into it. Now... What I'm going to do is get Neil on the phone, though, because I want to talk about the stimulus. And I'll let Neil explain why he's in a good position to discuss this. It's pretty interesting. Um, and I think this stimulus, I want to talk about where we're going economically. Um, and I want to talk about, um, you know, what, different aspects of it. And it's a more substantive conversation. Neil was great last time, and I think we'll have another substantive conversation. So I want to get him on. I'm going to uh, give him a call. Neil, if you're listening, I'm calling you now. See if I can do it. Hey, Larry. What's up, sir? How you doing? Doing well. How are you doing? You got the vaccine yet? Huh? <laughs> not yet. I'm getting it uh, April 7th. You got it? Hell no, man. Not in Manhattan. <laughs> Dude, I, I hear 40% of the ones they're giving away are going to people who live outside the city anyway. I, I heard that. I've heard of people finding some way to get the shot in Manhattan that don't even live there from some... They work there or they pass through or some other nonsense. But yeah. I do have an appointment for April 7th in South Jersey, like deep in South Jersey to get it. So I'm looking yeah, forward to it, even dude. In the other, even in the other boroughs, it's better than Manhattan. I know people in Queens... Um, who are eligible due to like comorbidities and stuff, and they got it within weeks. Uh, versus wow. like people I know in Manhattan who had comorbidities, they signed up when they became eligible, like in the beginning of March. Yes. And like the first open appointment was like late April or like middle of May or something like that. Holy like it's bad. 
That's that's terrible. So do you have any time in sight where you might get it? No, I signed up for Dr. B. Everybody should sign up for Dr. B. It's something that they set up the website and they roll it out to different participating regions. They just rolled it out to parts of NYC. And you basically sign up for text message alerts when they have, like, basically at the end of the day, like, people haven't shown up for theirs and they got to get rid of the shots. So they send you a text message alert when there's a shot for you. Interesting. So you're just yeah. waiting on the text message alert, pretty much. I'm better. I gotta wait until they just open up to everybody. Oh, high blood pressure. Yeah, that's that's it's it's a pain. But hopefully we're getting it out there. We get to a critical mass, and we can kind of. How is I was there yesterday, Manhattan. Went to a place on 35th, and it was kind of kind of normal. They set the tables up like at the bar because you can't sit at the bar, but there's a table yeah. attached to it. I mean, how is that? Like, Because you're there all the time, so you're a resident. So, like, is it opening up at all a little bit, or no? Is it the same in the last couple of weeks? It just kind of goes about their business. You know, like the grocery stores are the same. I mean, I don't really go out to bars or anything, but right. everybody's still in the, the little outdoor tents they set up on the streets. Um, right, you right. Know, there's, you know, people are hanging out. You know, I mean, it's... It, you know, I guess it's opening back up, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the wintertime anyways, so it's yes. not like, you know, people are, like, you know, backing into the bars and get one after work or something like that. It's just, um, so, yeah, I, I guess it's, it's opening up a little bit. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. We missed you on the golf course today. I heard uh, I heard we were trying to get you out there, and you couldn't make because you got rid of your clubs. Oh, he was out, he was out with you. Yeah, Jay yeah. texted me, but no, I haven't golfed in years, and even when I was, I was just chopping wood, man. <laughs> That's what we do, but hey. But no, we went out today. It was nice, and he said he called you, too, and we called Rafiq, but neither of you guys can make it. So that was it was fun little thing. All right, so to the stimulus. Now, I'm, I'm going to have a more substantive conversation in another couple weeks with you anyway because you're an awesome guest and you always have a lot of insight. But Thanks, yeah, we, we talked today, and maybe it would be good to have some hot takes because the stimulus did just recently get signed. There's a lot in it for state and local aid. I saw an article on CNN that it might actually put us on pace to – beat China economically, which hasn't happened in a long time. I don't know whose opinion that was, but I read that. Anyway, tell us a little bit about why you're familiar with not necessarily this stimulus, but the stimuluses in general and things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm far from an expert. And, like, because this just passed, you know, there's going to be some much better analysis that's going to come out. I mean, the way that these things work is, you know, they pass it and then they stamp a number on it and they says this is about the value of this package. And then right. after the analysis gets done, you know, later on they reestimate, like, oh, this was the actual cost. So it's really how things play out. Um, you know, for example, when they passed – the um, 2009 uh, Stimulus Act, like Obama's first big thing. Yes. You know, they said it was 700 or $700 billion, I believe it was. Right. And um, then later, you know, they revised it. It was like cost like 836 something like that. So, you know, there's going to be, we're going to get a better picture of like what the actual outlays are and what the, what the real effects are like later down the road. But, you know, I guess, you know, I've done a little bit of academic work on, the uh, stimulus packages uh, and everything that happened in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis because obviously when we were in law school, like that had sort of just happened. Yes. Dodd-Frank and all those new um, regulatory actions were just playing out. Um, right. You know, when I worked at the SEC just you know for a short period of time as uh, one of their legal interns, you know, we were in the department that was implementing Dodd-Frank. And then 
Um, you know, in my current work as a compliance officer on Wall Street, you know, I've um, participated in last year's stimulus when they rolled out the TALF program, which mm-hmm. for those of you who are familiar is the uh, term asset-backed loan facility. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with um you know, some aspects of these, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's really interesting. Well, let me ask you this to just rewind on two things real quick. First off, I didn't know this. You saying that when they put the price tag on these things, they keep saying 1.9 trillion, 1.9. How do they arrive at, so you're saying they don't necessarily have a package that earmarks an, an exact amount of money that they're well, proposing. Yeah. Let me, for example, so they, um, they say we're going to give out checks to everyone who makes under, $80,000. Right. Um, but, like, they just, they don't know, like, basically, if you're already in the, like, the, the IRS system is having paid their taxes and you know what your income is, then, like, you know, those people automatically get checks. But, you know, I guess they don't know, you know, exactly, like, I think other people can go in and, like, put in their information if they haven't recently filed taxes. Right. So you can have, like, variation in number of people who get checks. You know, also right. a lot, a chunk of this program or this, uh, all of these recent bills go to extending unemployment benefits. So you don't know exactly like who's going to claim mm-hmm. them for how long. Because, mm-hmm. for example, like you can claim unemployment, but if you get a job, you're not supposed to do that anymore. You're supposed to tell them. So there's all kinds of like open-ended variables that could, that could change what the the final number and cost is. That makes a ton of sense, which I never even really thought about that. But yeah, so it's it's an estimate, I guess, when they give these price tags. And does it do you, yeah. does it generally cost less or more at the end of the day? Do you know? Is it is 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 there any oh, constant? That. No. Yeah, you'd have to look at like you know all the bills, and of course things of this particular nature don't happen very often. Um, so yeah, I mean who knows? I, I would I would estimate more probably. Right, more. Um, now yeah. so now back to the aspect of the first stimulus that you had worked on. Which aspect of it was that again? So like when they did the. Um, the CARES Act in March. Yes. Part of that, or maybe a parallel act, was sort of the the Wall Street bailout, as people refer to it as, right. where they they that the Fed opened up what they call their discount window, um, and they they use you know Fed money to sort of uh, support you know our large institutions, and one of those programs was called the the TALF program, which was originally created in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, they just reactivated it back in March. Um, and the way that they run those programs that are that are aimed at Wall Street is that they run them through their primary dealers, which is a is a group of 24 um, financial institutions that sort of serve as the uh, liaison between the financial markets and the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, we I, I helped coordinate um, one of those programs from a compliance aspect. Well, that's pretty interesting. Now, yeah. let me, I mean, how did that, as much as you can say, I mean, was that more, I mean, look, and I don't know because I'm going off reporting and who knows if reporting is reliable. I just did a whole tirade on that. I mean, it, did it go smoothly, you know, from your aspect as far as, the, the main financial institution aid, because I heard so many horror stories about the PPP and things, which I know were separate. I mean, did right. that aspect that you worked on, did that go well? Or were there yeah, bumps? I think the rollout was really good. I mean, if you even go back to like 2009, after it was all said and done, um, you know, the federal government made sure that everyone was aware that they didn't lose a dime on the TALP program. Right. Um, you know, these, you know, everybody looks at, 
um, these this stimulus and relief from Wall Street, and they say it's corporate giveaways. But really, the federal government isn't in the business, especially the Federal Reserve, isn't in the business of giving money to anyone. Anyway. Right. It's it's always in the form of. Uh, like loans and repurchase agreements. So, you know, what they do specifically for the TALF program, what they did is they created a special purpose vehicle, just a separate legal entity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they funded it with $100 billion and then they made loans out of that mm-hmm. against good collateral. Right. So essentially, people right. who needed liquidity, like cash, to run their businesses to keep solvent, mm-hmm. but, in, you know, they had securitized, you know, Mortgage securities, auto securities, you know, people's, you know, car loans and things like that, even like student loans, they can just give them to the Fed for a temporary, temporary period of time, you know, take a haircut on it mm-hmm, um, for mm-hmm. a fee, and then they, in exchange, they get uh, money so they can run their business. And then when they don't need it anymore, they pay it back and they give back their assets. So, yeah, not, not any corporate giveaways, but yeah, I would say overall it went smoothly. It was just, um, I think everyone was scrambling in order to implement the program as quickly as possible because, you know, I think we all saw the stock market recovered pretty quickly. Yes. So by the you know by by June or July. Yes. Um, but you know by the time you know when when they implement these programs, the the banks that are actually implementing the programs, like they have to go through full on like new business reviews, um, and you know legal's got to opine, compliance has to opine, right. everybody has to get the infrastructure in place. Um, it, so by the time it actually gets rolled out, I mean, by Takes the time we're actually making the loans, I think the stock market was back, you know, within 10% of its previous highs. So, you know, it seemed like it was it was just a little delayed, but it, I mean, it went smoothly. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, so we always heard, you know, and it's hard always in hindsight to for people to appreciate the impact. And I think it's especially true with the financial crisis of 2008. Everybody says it's a, it's a giveaway or was didn't work adequately or whatever else. But let me ask you this. How much of an impact, meaning, look, we all know there was impacts, businesses are struggling, there's people unemployed, we know that. But, I mean, the economy in and of itself seems to have been at least, I mean, in large part stabilized through this. And we're finally seeing a light at the end of the tunnel with these vaccines. How much of the stabilization of the economy and how much of us being able to hopefully quickly rebound when we do reopen fully – can you attribute to these programs, and can you attribute to those first uh, that first stimulus bill? So, I mean, I think about it in two separate groups: Wall Street and Main Street, because mm-hmm. you know, I think back in the middle of the 20th century, you know, there was a, a strong connection between Wall Street and Main Street. Yes. You know, if one wasn't doing well, then the other one wasn't doing well. Yes. That kind of thing. But I think over time, we've seen like the separation, such that you know. We had thousands of people standing in food lines when the Dow was reaching record highs. Yeah. So I think that is illustrative of a split between Wall Street and Main Street. So when I talk about like economic recovery, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it in those terms. In terms of the Wall Street recovery, I don't know that. Aside from the direct impact, I think the biggest impact is the message that it sends to investors who right. really are the ones supporting the asset prices. Yes. And that message was, is we're not going to let anything fail. Right. Which is why 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 the Dow went back up to where it was. I mean, you right. could say something about the impact of like, you know, everybody sitting at home trading on Robinhood, inflating prices, but you know, 
considering the number of shares that actually change hands every day, you know, you could, there's might probably be like a minor effect, but yeah, I mean, it's more the message it sent to everyone that we're not going to let any, you know, we're not going to let any airlines fail. We're not going to let any banks fail. We're not going to let any industries fail. Like we just have an open checkbook and no one's going to fail. And so everybody was like, Oh, well then why wait to buy the stock? You know, a year and a half from now, when the economy's regressed, by now, it's not. There's not any less risk. That makes you know, it. I might even get a discount on the price now because nothing's going to fail. Now, let me ask you this: Rick posed the question. I don't. Uh, he said, "How do you ever stabilize thirty trillion dollars in debt seriously now?" Yeah. What is it? Do you know? I don't even. Um. Do you know what he means by that question? Can you answer it? Yeah, I mean, how do you run like a stable economy as a going concern when you have that much debt? Right. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, but this like from like a really high up perspective, you know, like there's there's an end to this party. We right, know it's gonna right. There's going to be next year, five years, thirty years. There's there's a, a great book. It's called This Time Is Different, and mm-hmm. it's really a lot of academic work crammed into a book, but it, it studies. Like you know the uh, the relationship between debt and, and government spending over time, and it's called this time is different because you know during every good economy, you know there's always people who say, well, you know there's going to be a downturn. Yes. There's always someone, even the experts, and they say, oh no, this time is different. Even right. in early 2008, people were like, no, no, the housing market will never go down. This time is different. But no, the bad time, the, the downturn always comes. So right. It's a great concern about how we keep this as a going concern into the future with that much debt because i mean the findings are like no matter how strong your economy is you know it it might take a very large number for us to reach like our threshold that causes like the tipping point so to speak but i mean there's going to be an end to this party sometime there's no way we can just go off like into you know infinity every year carrying you know, multi-trillion dollar deficits. Right, we can't. Now let me ask you this because this that your point now just kind of fed into something you mentioned back when the CARES Act was passed, and I also want to ask it in conjunction with something else I'm curious about, which is I recall when the CARES Act had been passed, you had I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, there was you know you had come out and, and said you know maybe the direct I think it was the direct payments. Maybe there was something you were like, maybe that wasn't the best way to spend. Was that it? I don't. T- tell me if I'm wrong. I thought there was something. Okay. Yeah, I think I recall what you're talking about. So yeah. one thing I think, if, I'm, if I have the opportunity to shape people's perception of the programs that have happened over the last 365 days, is this is like, remember how the government reacted to the financial downturn in 2008, 2009, and how all of the money basically went to the top of the economy just to provide liquid liquidity and stimulus to the top of the economy, to yes. the big firms, hoping it would you know trickle down, so to speak. Right. But like this time, there was a huge, a huge portion, a significant portion of these programs were fed to Main Street businesses, directly into you know the paychecks via the PPP, and then like directly to individual citizens. And that is such a stark contrast as the way the the government reacted in 2008. Right. And so, you know, uh, a lot of the focus, I think, you know, back in March was like, you know, corporate bailouts and how the money was being spent. It was a blank check. But, you know, really my first reaction was like, wow, like they're actually giving money like directly to small businesses and directly to the individual. So I thought that was a 
just you know an interesting turn in, in some ways you know every time we go through something like you know really uh, terrible you know we say well maybe you know it was good that we went through this because you know we'll use the lessons that we learned next time right and I think that that was a huge part of it that especially you know in March when they set up those programs because I mean that was a Republican Congress I know that was right a Republican president right you know you think about like everything they went through to pass the stimulus even during the 2008 financial crisis I mean Hank Paulson who was the Treasury Secretary under George Bush you know after they after you know Bear Stearns failed and was bought by Morgan Stanley mm-hmm. after they they couldn't arrange a buyer for Lehman Brothers and they just let it fail on you know Sunday September 15th and like you know Hank Paulson thought he was going to have to go and convince Congress that they were going to have to spend 700 billion Right, and that was an economy. Yes, and he was like, "Oh my God, they're going to laugh me out of the building." <laughs> right, and just now about that in terms of like you know, they, yes, this program they just passed yesterday. They said four hundred billion dollars is just going to be to checks to individuals. Yeah, like on the bottom line, like that is like this whole bill is one point nine trillion dollars, and together with the December bill and the March bill, which is the CARES Act, the total I think is. trillion just to give you a comparison the entire federal budget in 2019 was 4.4 trillion and that was against 3.5 trillion of revenues so so, let me ask you this then so to piggyback off that is it I know it, it so the small businesses we're talking about Main Street Wall Street is it effective? And I mean that in the not to sound callous. Like I know it's effective for the individual who gets that check for that month, but is it an, is is direct payments and things of that nature? Is that an effective use of our debt, of our money, our federal spending? You know, is that an expansion because it makes sense, or is that more of a you know, an optics thing because they don't want to just concentrate on the top. I mean, how effective I'm more of a demand side guy, I think. So I understand it, but is it effective from your perspective, which, you know, you have a little bit more background in finance and and economics. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's effective. I mean, let me, if you're saying like, you know, should we do it? Like, is it worth it? I would say yes. If you're comparing it to like, you know, saying is it effective? Like, is it, um, you know, were they compared to like other ways we use our funds? But I, I think I would say yes. I mean, like the whole idea of a bailout, whether you're talking about like Main Street or Wall Street, is that you know this you know look at like a particular business. This going concern has more value to us, yes. you know, as a going concern than as of its individual constituent parts. Yes, you know, there's a lot of like human capital and knowledge and experience. And obviously, you know, that particular business has value in its own individual market. And the only reason these businesses are, you know, under threat of failing in the short term is usually due to liquidity. Right. Whether it's because the value of their assets fell or because they're no longer, they lost revenue streams. But it's done with the view that, like, things will get better. So, like, yeah, I mean, it's it's worth it because, you know, you're keeping, like, a valuable asset. You know, a small business or a corporation that like mm-hmm. gives people jobs, provides tax revenue, provides services. You know, you don't want to lose all that experience, that human capital, and the relationships that go into that. You know, there's a lot of things that you really can't account for on a balance sheet. Um, but you know, put all together, you know, I think the idea of a bailout is something that you you know you feel there's value in preserving. 
makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So now let me ask you about this, which kind of goes in conjunction. We heard one thing I heard on it was interesting. I was watching one of those panels on TV and somebody said, you know, it's not just as easy as, as you kind of said, as flicking a light switch now that they signed the bill. The mechanisms and infrastructure needs to be put in place to actually get this money where it's intended to go. A, how did that go to the extent you know in terms of getting it to Main Street in the first bill? Because we've heard so much, so many conflicting reports about it. And the DPP, people say it was misused. I don't know, you know, the ins and outs. And then B, to the extent you do know, because I know this bill just really came out, how, you know, or is it, are the mechanisms in place from the first one? Is it going to be easier? Is it really difficult to get it to Main Street because it's so much more, you know, widespread and nuanced in all different states and different economies and sectors? I mean, how'd the first one go and how do you see this one going in terms of getting money and aid to Main Street? Because it's harder, I, I would think. It doesn't have the same. You know, yeah. you know what I mean. Like, just as just as in the TALF program, you know, ex- with the exception of the individual checks, which it just, you know, looks at what IRS rolls and just mail right. them out. Right. And, you know, it just sets up a website and it says, you know, if you weren't included, you think you should be, you can, like, sign up or whatever. Right. Um, you know, it relies on existing infrastructure. So for the unemployment stuff, obviously, they just provide funding mm-hmm. to the state governments who run those programs. And then for, like, the Main Street, like the payroll protection program and the SBA loans, small business association loans, they, again, rely on the existing financial infrastructure they use, the banks. So the biggest uh, um, issue that I saw when the rollout um, from the CARES Act in March was that, you know, they allotted um, a certain amount of funds to each bank um, and then, you know, told them go out and and make loans according to these parameters. Um, But uh, the banks, almost all, if not all, banks would only provide those loans to businesses that already had business checking accounts with them. Yes, that's what I heard, so and that was a problem. Example, right. I knew somebody, this is anecdotal, but still of mm-hmm. value, they they had a, a small business and their um, uh, business checking business account was with Wells Fargo, mm-hmm. um, but like Wells Fargo was just like completely inundated. So, you know, they're, you know, basically the form of a waiting list and they're waiting to talk to somebody. And then by the time they talk to somebody, um, put in their claim or ask for a loan or what have you, um, they, they were out of funds. And mm-hmm. then so it was a waiting period until the government released additional funds. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there was just because of, um, you know, the limitations in that approach, you know, of course, there were some businesses that, um, you know, weren't able to get the funds that they needed and, and maybe failed in the meantime or things like that. But really, it comes down to, you know, how effective the individual institutions are. Yes. You know, because the, your, your experience at, you know, Wells Fargo could be different than that at Bank of America, could be different than that at J.P. Morgan Chase. So it, it really comes down to how well those institutions actually handle the rollout. And so... Uh, and your question, your, your question about, uh, you know, how this one's different, yep. uh, you know, I haven't seen much of the details uh, in this one, but I will tell you that, you know, anything that they administer through those financial institutions to Main Street like that are going to be subject to, you know, the same issues and limitations, except Mm -hmm. this time around, they will, you know, have, of course, the learning experience of the first time 
And then right. maybe they've had more time to um, implement some kind of, you know, better infrastructure for that. Because like we talked about before with the TAL program, it was all, you know, in the first three months and trying to get out as soon as possible. And it was things that they sort of had it done before. Right. And so, and, and, and I mean, now that I think about it, so I mean, it would be, virtually impossible. You have to set up a, a, a huge bureaucracy if the government was going to directly do this. You have to rely on the participating institutions yeah. who are already administering business loans and things. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And the reason it's easy for, the reason it's easy for um, the stuff that goes to Wall Street is because I mean, that's what the Federal Reserve already does on a day-to-day. Right. I guess a lot of people don't know what they do, but the Federal Reserve is you know, in, in the treasury market in some ways is already um, participating in the financial markets on a daily basis. Right. So, you know, when they say, you know, open the discount window and like, you know, make loans um, or make repurchase agreements, you know, they can do that right. literally overnight. Right. That makes sense. So then another aspect to this bill, which I thought was really important, um, I know it's not necessarily your wheelhouse, but I'm sure you have some, you know, you know, at least knowledge on it or an opinion on it. I mean, the, the state and local government aid in this bill seemed to be a major sticking point to me. I thought it made a lot of sense. State and local governments are big employers. They provide much needed services. They're handling the vaccines to some extent and the administering of them. I mean, how much of a, from an economic standpoint, and you could chime in as to other aspects too. I mean, how big was that and how substantial was the aid that was earmarked for that in this bill? I think it's huge. I mean, in the same way that, you know, I was flooding, um, you know, the idea of giving um, liquidity directly to the bottom of the economy in the form of payroll protection and Main Street loans and individual checks. I mean, I think uh, providing support to municipalities is is a huge positive step because, um, you know, there's all this spending and, you know, we were talking about debt, but, you know, the... um, yeah, state and local governments don't have the same, you know, access to the debt markets and financing like uh, the federal government does. I mean, you can imagine the type of uh, the budget hole that, like, New York City or the state of New York was going to be in. Right. Um, you know, they were talking about, you know, questions about whether or not um, the MTA could remain solvent. So, right. I mean, you know, to, to judge the actual effect, I mean, it will vary from state to state, from city to city, but I think it's a huge deal. I mean, there were, you know, but some of the things we know apply nationally, like funding the SNAP program Mm -hmm. and, you know, funding unemployment and things like that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's very positive. I mean, I think I'm just looking at the numbers from New Jersey. I mean, like, you know, I think Atlantic City is getting, you know. Millions of dollars and, yeah, and they know, need, right. millions of dollars and things right. like that. So yeah, that's a big deal. Now, let me ask you this. I don't want to, if there's, if there's more on the stimulus bill, I want to see if you, if you want to delve into this, but because I was talking about canceling in the media and how things kind of just get so abruptly mass hysterically reported on for lack of a better term. Do you want to discuss what we talked about the other time with the VCU situation? I know it's completely off topic, but I feel like it's just something interesting that, you know, it could be good radio. So I don't know if you want to discuss that in the vein of what I was talking about a little bit. I don't know if you're prepared for it. We didn't talk about yeah, it. Sure. No, but, well, first off, before we jump off the other topic, yeah, I want to put this out there so everyone's aware. I'm pretty sure, I haven't seen the details, but I think the Democrats in Congress added a provision in this bill that retroactively made unemployment uh, unemployment assistance received in 2020 
non-taxable for the first $10,200. So I know everybody's going to be filing taxes here in the next month. So look into that, see if that applies to you, because um, that's a pretty big deal, I think. Yeah, because I was talking to somebody the other day, some of the people I mentioned when I was in the little monologue, and they were worried about that. And they were talking about that, so that's really, really good to know. Yeah, a lot of people were spending this because they needed it, you know, to buy groceries and stuff and pay their rent, but they weren't necessarily aware that they had to set some aside for taxes. Right. No, that's great. So now, listen, so to pivot a little bit here, and then I'll take calls from other people, too, and if you stick around, maybe call back or maybe just participate on the chat or whatever. We'll see how long this goes. But you went to VCU, right? And how are you guys still in? Are you guys in the 20 this year? What's going on with the basketball team? Oh, yeah. The uh, A-10 tournament final is on... Sunday, uh-huh. uh, BCU Rams play St. Bonaventure, I believe. Yes. Number one, two seats. So, um, I don't know. I think uh, the, the uh, conference was pretty quality this year. I think uh, whoever wins the runner-up is probably going to get a bit as well. So, we'll probably be in the So, you'll probably be in the tournament. It's good. It's my, I think it's going to be the first time in 30-something years for Rutgers this year because uh, – we lost today to Illinois in the Big Ten tournament. We won against Indiana, but our resume is pretty damn nice for that league. So I think. Yeah, but I mean, how many are they going to, like, compared to the rest of the Big Ten? I mean, they're going to be giving away a lot of at large bids to Big Ten teams. Yeah. Have such a quality conference this year. You think Rutgers going to give one? Oh, yeah, definitely. They were 500. Now they're, they're 500 again. They're 11 and 11, and they got uh, a lot of quad one. Like, they beat uh, Illinois. They beat Michigan State. They beat a bunch of uh, Maryland. They beat a bunch of teams that were that are going to get bids that are high level, high level teams. Rutgers was right in the middle of the pack. I think they were tied for six out of fourteen. So yeah, bro, yeah. So they're gonna they're gonna be in it by all indications. Selection Sunday. I'll shoot you a text, but I think first time in thirty years they're gonna break that drought. So it's it's good stuff. But anyway, so VCU. Aside from that, I knew you were an alum. I knew you followed the ball team, so I wanted to ask about the ball team. There was some news out of there in the last couple weeks that you were kind of telling me about, and and it's look, it goes into this. This is another long happening thing that's been reported on lately which is these hazing incidents and then the quick response is always like you know there's been a lot of i'll say this when we talk about cancel culture and i don't want to totally try to meld the whole thing to the general topic of the show if it doesn't work it doesn't work but i will say that when we talk about some of these things that people see as quote primitive or oppressive or systemically unviable today one of the things that i see constantly coming under fire is you know, Greek life and fraternity life. And I never was a part of it. I was a commuter for most of my life. I went to the Rutgers, New Brunswick campus with my buddies who went to the main campus and I partied at frats and all that. We had a love-hate relationship, but but I'm familiar to some extent, but I know you were involved in it. Tell us a little bit about what happened with VCU. And, I, you know, just I want to talk about how there was a quick reaction and how Greek life now is somewhat vilified too in this this societal place we're in now where we kind of go back and want to get rid of things i don't know how it pertains to vcu because i don't know the whole story you'll tell me but tell us a little bit about what occurred and then thoughts and your background in greek life and and whatnot we'll talk about it yeah so um basically uh delta chi who's a fraternity at vcu um um, I guess they're back on campus, um, but uh, one way or another, they were allowed to run a pledge program for mm-hmm. the spring, and uh, one of their pledges was found dead. Okay, which is you know terrible. Yes, um, but uh, you know it's he was found um, 
dead, uh, not in their fraternity house. Like uh, it was found dead uh, somewhere else. I mean, VCU's campus, you know, it's an urban campus, so you know they're, they're neighborhoods and it's in a city. So he was found um, dead, not at their house, somewhere else nearby. Mm-hmm. And um, so, of course, you know, it, uh, the the focus automatically goes to whether it was a hazing incident because he was a pledge. Um, oh, so they don't course, even know. You know there was. Go ahead. I said so they don't even know if it was a if it was involved in pledging or not. They just found a pledge dead. Yeah, and like the first reaction was that um, that you know he drank himself to death. He had a bad reaction after drinking an excessive quantity um, of alcohol, right. and there was questions of whether or not it was associated with a, with a fraternity event. But you know, of course, you know, speaking to your conversation about you know cancel culture, you know, the immediate reaction within forty eight hours of, of this news coming down, there was a petition started on you know BCU's campus to you know get rid of the entire you know, <laughs> you know, Greek life system. Right. Um, and, you know, we saw exactly, you know, this happened um, with the UVA rape case, right? So, like, that's yes. where it came down. And people surrounded their house and, like, bricked their windows and things like that mm-hmm. um, before, you know, there was any investigation. And before the investigation was complete, we found out that the story was a fabrication. So, right. Um, yeah, I mean, but, I mean, it raises a larger question outside of, you know, the question about cancel culture is that, you know, does is there still value in our society and value in our little uh, university microcosms um, from the Greek system. Well, you know, what would you still say? valuable, still politically correct, things like that. What would you say about that? What's your opinion on that? Well, you know, VCU is different because when everybody thinks fraternities, of course, they think about your traditional university in a college town and you have uh, the Greek row and these big houses mm-hmm. and they think fraternities are populated by, you know, legacies and rich white guys wearing polo shirts and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, but, you know, VCU is different because it's, you know, it's a liberal arts school in an increasingly liberal city in Richmond. Um, and, you know, being an urban campus... You know, there's no such thing as Greek row. You know, the fraternity right. house was, you know, whatever house a couple of guys could get together and run. Yes, right, and, right. You know, and then you, you know, you hang your letters up and you're like, okay, for this year, this is going to be our fraternity house. <laughs> right, right. And you know, it's the the system there has never really been, you know, hugely supported. We've never had any funding from the university or things like you might see at um, other college campuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, starting in the early 2000s uh, when I was there. Um, you know, they, they brought in um, new persons to run the Interfraternal Council, IFC, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, they were really trying to, like, whip our system into shape. And even at a national level, like in the 90s, in reaction to some big hazing cases and bad news, right. they, um, you know, they, they aggressively cracked down on all hazing to the point where they said, you know, even sending pledges on a scavenger hunt was hazing. Right, they you know, classify. So, so yes. Like, what are we allowed to do? Like, you, you right. don't want people, you know, doing like the bad things, but those are things that you might do with like a church group. Yeah, right. You know? right. So, yeah, so Greek life. Well, my point is that Greek life at VCU is is very different, and you know, it it exists, you know, on a, on a liberal campus, and it's it's not. It's really a diverse group of people. Um, you know, we had, uh, you know, I think we had a, a higher um, minority. Uh, membership um, percentage in our group than like the overall campus. Right. You know, right. we had, you know, members of the L- LGBT community who were members of our fraternity. 
um, things like that. So it's not it's not your traditional picture of university fraternities with you know rich white guys wearing polos. Right. And let me ask you this though, even even on a more grand level, I mean, isn't there value to you know, becoming initiated into a group, and I'm not saying violently or, or, or unhealthily initiated, but, you know, getting initiated into a group by, by performing certain tasks, paying dues, you know, then benefiting from the uh, organization that you're a part of, the camaraderie, and of course, if it's exclusionary, then we're not saying, we're not talking about that being beneficial to society, if it's right. exclusionary, or if you get in just based on legacy. But say yeah. say you take, hypothetically, legacy completely out of it, and, um, and it's all merit-based. I mean, isn't there in our society a place for that? Even if, say, somebody doesn't get in because they don't jive with the, the group or they didn't pass the test. I mean, isn't there value in that? Or are we to say that it's completely valueless if it's in any way exclusive or a group or there's an initiation yeah. period? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there, I mean, there's two questions there. It's like, is there value to the individuals that go they're involved in the process yes. and involved in that um, little community? Um, and then what is the overall net value to either, you know, I guess you wouldn't say society at large, you would say the society of the university. Right. Um, yeah, so for the individuals involved, um, you know, I would say that there's a similar or possibly even more value than um, participating in other um uh, student organizations, you know, like student government or any, you know, every university has a myriad of uh, student organizations. Right. Um, but, you know, the question about whether or not they provide a net positive value to um, the rest of the campus mm-hmm. and the students on the campus really comes to, you know, down to the individual organization. Um, you know, I mean, it's, you know, participate in, you know, take back the night, um, you know, the anti-rape awareness, you know, marches and things like that. Mm-hmm. You participate in lots of, you know, charity drives mm-hmm. and things like that. And then we also, you know, throw events that are for, um, you know, everyone, not just for members of the uh, fraternal community. Um, and I'm not talking about just, you know, parties that were actually yeah. organized um, events that we would throw on campus that was, you know, public for everyone. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the question is, is all of that, um, you know, net positive of what uh, people perceive as the, um, the, if any, negatives of, you know, whether or not, you know, it's a negative to still have a, um, you know, gender-exclusive right. um, group of organizations. Right. I mean, it's interesting, because I, I feel like a lot of things today, we have a tendency, like, to your point about Greek life, where you, you say fraternity in the instant you know, connotation is, you know, exclusionary guys and polo shirts, mostly wealthy, mostly white. And I feel like a lot of different things in society, we look at the initial connotation and then we go off of that and we don't even bother to explore whether it is beneficial or whether, you know, and I know that's another question, gender exclusive and things of that nature. We can, anybody can differ on whether they think it's beneficial, but they don't even get to that question because it's just the caricature of whatever we're talking about. And then the immediate exactly. response, you know, and it's without delving into the nuance of it or the, or the, rea- I feel like sometimes the reality is lost. Like when I spoke about the, Asian violence thing, I mean, it's probably not even predominantly necessarily a racial thing. It's more of like, wow, we have crimes going on in impoverished areas and targeting certain elderly people, whatever. Like, the reality gets lost. Like, this young man who died might not have even passed away from anything to do with the fraternity for all we know, but it takes on a life of its own. 
You know, it's it's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the first the first thing was, of course, like the the overall like negative reaction, and um, you know, it it fed into you know people who have a negative view of the Greek system. You know, it fed right into their existing you know caricature of what the Greek right. system was. You know, just like you know, every time it's the same thing. Whenever there's any kind of sexual assault case, there you know every. Every campus, you know, there's like, you know, rumors about, you know, fraternities being, um, you know, um, having sexual assault issues and things like right. that. So, yeah, I mean, it fed right into that. And then, of course, you know, you have the overall community. And so right when this news broke uh, a few weeks ago, you know, within days, there was already the rumor mill. And I was, you know, talking to people yes. back in Richmond. And, you know, there were already all these, everybody had different rumors about, like, what had actually happened. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's really what we've talked about before about how, uh, you know, social media culture has, you know, trained our brains to react first without analyzing. Yes. And I remember so you hear that news and it feeds, you know, it right. feeds into our existing, you know, caricatures of these organizations and, you know, it just feeds that and then we react based on that. Yeah. And I think when you pose the question too in the, in the comment section, there's like, I, know, I don't even know if there's a viable way out of the woods, out of our society perceiving and, and, you know, engaging in that way, but it sure is frustrating. <laughs> That's, exactly. You know, especially when you know, you know, like you know about fraternities and you end that campus. So you're like, dude, pause. Like you don't even, you know, it's just. Well, my, my, my personal reaction was that, you know, I, I lived in a fraternity house and I was also um, president of a fraternity for a year and on the board for a few years. And I, I know from those situations that there's some things you can control and some things you can't control, mm -hmm. right? If something happened as part of, you know, we hear every year about somebody, you know, getting hurt, um, either, either hazed or drinking too much during, you know, part of like the actual like pledging process. Right. And that's ridiculous. Right. You know, that should never happen. If, you, right. if they actually do an investigation and find out that that's what took place, that they were hazing this person and they were forcing him to drink mm -hmm. you know, large amounts of alcohol. Right. Like, that is absolutely ridiculous. Those people committed a crime and they're a stain on the Greek community. 100%. Just like whenever you hear about somebody, you know, hazing somebody and like beating somebody, you know, yes. it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, I was fortunate to be a part of a, a good organization that never had any issue with that whatsoever, even going back decades before I was there. So, you know, but if you, you know, but there's, you know, in terms of, you know, being an organization that's, you know, often open to the public, you know, for parties, mm -hmm. you know, an organization that has lots of members who are their own individual for college person going around and just living college life. You know, there's so many things you can control and, you know, there are those things that you can't, right. you know, it's like, it's like they, they, you know, when you're at work mm -hmm. and they're giving you your training about, you know, interpersonal relationships and everything. And they say, um, you know, anywhere you are, you go out, out for drinks after work, you yes. know, if you're with like, you know, two or more people from work, it's considered a work event or whatever. Right. You know, that's the way it is with fraternities. They're like, if there's two or more of your fraternity members there, it's considered a fraternity event. Well, in college, it had been everything your entire life is a rolling fraternity. Yes. Yes. You might only hang out with those people. So like, how can you control that from a liability perspective? Like you can't. Right. That's a great point too. And my, and Andrew senior made a good comment. Like organization is only as good as the people running them. And that's true. So, you know, you have good people in your organization. It's fine. You can't just, you can't just say any organization 
without the people behind it, we're just going to label it good or bad without looking at the individual circumstances and, you know, trying to categorize everything gets, gets difficult. I mean, I agree with that in some ways. I mean, you know, in order to have a good organization, you need to have good people running it. But when you have an organization of, you know, 30 or even, you know, 20 college kids, yes. you know, that's what they are. They're kids. Yes. You know, they could, they could be a part of an organization being run by good people, but, you know, are they going to be great 100% of the time, you know, college kids? Right. Good know, point. It's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to control. Well, and it's also, it's interesting because we talk about hazing in general. I mean, they always, they, then they start, you know, with the, the athletes in, in high schools. And I played sports in high school. And you fooled around. You throw water at somebody. You know, you hit somebody with a towel. I don't know, something stupid. And then you see these assaults where it's like with a broom handle. And it's like a vicious sexual assault. And they yeah. act as if that's commonplace. Like, this is what they're doing. I'm like, no, no, no. This is really out of the realm of normality like so far out of it it's odd i've never seen anything like it it's not just the nature of the locker room that's causing it there's something wrong with the people engaged in it and the locker room might have facilitated it but it's not vice versa it's not like the locker room creates the broom handle so that's you know they, they, they make that equivalency to the the correlation not causation thing which gets really out of hand you know Right. Yeah, you know, I knew, you know, I knew some Delta Chi people, you know, back when I was there, and you know, it was a good organization. Um, then, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of you know hazing incidents or um, you know drinking injuries or deaths uh, when I was there. But you know, it's been you know 15, 12, 15 years since I've been on campus, and you know, a lot of things can change in that period of time. You know, in order, you know, from year to year. Um, you know, to pass on, you know, um, a good quality organization to each, you know, new generation of, uh, you know, of college kids is, you know, that, that can be difficult. Right. 100%. 100%. So that was, that was an interesting thing. I just wanted to touch on because I think it's just something that, that, you know, goes with the, the theme of the show and kind of, you know, you had talked to me about, and I think it just makes for good, you know, conversation and whatnot. Um, we got to do this again soon, dude. It's always we, we we could we should come up with a topic too that um it could be something recent like the stimulus was, but even hot just takes. something even just yeah hot takes or even just something at a left field we could do the hot takes every now and then, but also just something we want to talk about and just do and just have you on to talk about it because it's it's always a pleasure and it's always a good conversation. So yeah, no, I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean obviously I found the stimulus you know pretty interesting just the. Uh, the numbers in general, you know, we can we can talk about this in more depth later on. We mm-hmm. have additional details if you want, but uh, yeah, I always enjoy coming on. Yeah, love having you on, and uh, one, we should touch base in the next couple of weeks, kind of when this stimulus is being implemented. And I know more news will pop up in the interim, so anything that catches your head when you're reading the headlines or vice versa, we'll touch base and get you on. If you stay on, I'm gonna have some calls. See if anybody calls. If anybody wants to comment, you know, on, on any of our conversation, you know, maybe chime in in the comments or whatnot, and then we'll see what happens. And if not. Thanks for coming on as always, bro. Thanks for being a contributor and you'll be back on soon. Appreciate it having you. And, you know, thanks for being a part of uh, my first night back in a while, brother. And good, good, go VCU this weekend, get the bid. Rutgers get the bid and let's have a fun uh, Thursday, Friday yeah, next go week. Go Rutgers, go VCU and uh, have a good weekend, man. All right, brother. Later, Neil. Hey. 973-536-2530. Go ahead and call if you want, guys. Otherwise, I'm going to wrap the show up was another good show. I apologize for that technical difficulty at the end. 
So you can hear me, Hanine. I don't think anybody else can because I think it kicked so many people off that um, we are now at a loss. So I'm probably just going to wrap the show up because when I plugged in the phone just to keep it going it looks like it disconnected and then reconnected on a brand new stream so i think a lot of people got kicked off and now they don't know how to get back in so i'll give it another minute or two to see if anybody else comes in and wants to call in and talk but other than that i think uh i think that might be it another good show though another good show i thank everybody for joining listening Hanging out with me on another Friday night as I gaze out at the skyline and have my music playing behind me. Always got good music on deck. And I'm glad you guys like the music I have. Always try to provide it on my little Instagram videos and whatnot, too. I think it adds a nice little touch so everybody knows what I'm doing and everybody knows the vibe that I'm in on a given time and a given place. And I hope in the future, in the next couple weeks, we can get some more phone calls. And uh, just get some more conversation going. I always have a blast. And I always like to put forth good music. And Hanin, I got more music to show you. Don't worry. I got tons of music. So um, it's always on deck. It's always ready. I always got the, the right vibes. But until next time, guys, I guess that'll do it for tonight. It's been another great Friday. Nice two-hour conversation. Talked a lot about the stimulus, talked about the ridiculous cancel culture nonsense we got to deal with on a daily basis. And as always, it's been a pleasure. I thank you for listening to me. Thank you for joining me and hanging out with me and just exchanging ideas. It's a beautiful thing that we exchange ideas and it's a beautiful thing that we vibe out and touch base and continue to use our minds because that's the most important asset that we have as people, as humans, as members of society, and as Americans. And so I will always love to join you guys and to broadcast and chill out on these Friday nights. And I look forward to talking with you again very shortly in the coming weeks. And until then, I guess I'll uh, sign off and I'll see everybody very, very soon in the next couple weeks. Again, I apologize for the technical difficulty, which probably cut this show a little bit short because I think if I didn't have the technical difficulty, I would have been able to take a bunch more calls and everybody would still be listening and we'd be able to uh, continue the show. But that wasn't in the cards tonight, so I'll see you all very soon. I look forward to that time. I hope you all have a very pleasant, very nice weekend. Like I said, go VCU, go Rutgers. The selection Sunday. We'll find out who's in the tournament. I think they'll both be in the tournament. And hopefully, even though it gets a little bit colder, we all enjoy the good vibes that we had today in this beautiful weather. And spring is coming. Remember to set your clocks ahead. Saturday into Sunday, daylight savings is upon us, and it's going to be a lot lighter, a lot later in uh, the Northeast and the East Coast in general. So set your clocks ahead. Enjoy your weekends. Thanks for joining me. I'll join you soon. Good night.